Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I am just, uh, I'm so thrilled that today's guest, David Kep, is here with us today. This is someone I admired and respected for a really long time before I got to know him. And getting to know him uh, just showed me that uh, uh, my respect didn't go nearly far enough. He's a wonderful human being, uh, just a fine man and a, a, a true legend. Uh, I can never accept the fact, man, that you're only three years uh, older than me because uh, you are just so much more successful. And um, Oh, you've and, done all right, Brian. Yeah, no, it's all been <laughs> fine. But no, seriously, man, um, uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, your new movie, uh, which I've watched and I think is just terrific, and I really want to talk about the themes behind it. We'll get there after we talk about you a little bit, is uh, You Should Have Left, and uh, you, you uh, wrote and directed, I guess adapted from a novel and, and directed, and uh, thanks for being here, Dave. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. No, of course. Um, you know, I mean, if people don't, I, I just, I just want to quickly. I, I don't usually do this, but I just want to rattle off, um, you know, your credits for a second because they are, it not just because they're like gaudy uh, uh, credits, Dave, but because they show the breadth and depth of what you've been able to accomplish, and. Um, and there aren't many careers that are, are, you know, it ranges from like 1988, your first credit, to stuff that you have in production or about to be in production now. And I mean, you wrote Jurassic Park and I'm Bad Influence is the first movie of yours that I saw and that hit me in a deep way. Carlito's Way, The Paper, uh, as I said, Mission Impossible, Jurassic, The Lost World, Stir of Echoes, which you uh, also directed, Panic Room, which you wrote on spec, Spider-Man. Uh, you created a TV show in your spare time, even though you weren't in the mood to uh, run that show. War of the Worlds, uh, a film that uh, you wrote and shared credit with Josh Friedman, but I know you wrote that script original. You know, I mean, you worked on that script through production uh, after Josh did what he did. You wrote Zathra and uh, the Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and on, you know, Premium Rush, which I got to be in. You wrote and directed. Yeah, that's uh, right. Ghost Town, Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit is just an a really incredible career. And, you know, it's so Levine and I used to always say, even before we'd met you, that guy seems like he was born to be a screenwriter. Like it was almost a hardwired gift. Does that track for you at all? And, and if so, or if not, how did the idea blossom in you that, 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 that you were someone who was made to make stuff and tell stories? Well, I th thank you for that lovely introduction, by the way. Um, I think you, the, the two things happen when you're in this sort of vital period of time between when you're say 14 and 24, um, which is when, you know, most of your aesthetic preferences are set, not to say you won't discover new music, new books, new movies that you love, but after that, but you know, kind of who you are as an artist, what you're responding to, uh, or a craftsperson is, is, is set then. And, and in two ways, one, you see what you respond to, and two, you also see where do I get positive feedback? You know, where do, where are people saying, hey, pretty good. And where are people saying, oh, uh, or not saying anything, which is what they say when they, when they don't like it. Huh. Um, and I was, I started uh, writing stories when I was probably 12 or 13 years old. You know, I had a typewriter and I would write little stories about some kid who goes away to camp and has, a you know, some adventure in the woods or something. And, um, I liked it. I liked the typing of them very much. 
you know, I liked the being at the typewriter, yeah. thinking things up. And they were like, you know, three pages long. They were no great Where were jakes. you growing up? Where were you growing up? I was growing up in Pewaukee, Wisconsin, which is a, right, a hotbed of show business. Exactly. It was a town of about 3000 people in southeastern Wisconsin. Um, and, uh, you know, I so I, I enjoyed doing that. And then I started acting as well in high school plays. And then in college, I went to college for theater and I loved acting. And I, I really thought it was <clears throat> incredibly fun. And it also in high school was, and probably still is, a, a great way to meet girls because there were probably, you know, three guys auditioning for a show and, and, and 30 girls. So, you know, um, and, and, I, I and that aspect. Sure. So that, did you, were those ideas fused in your head at all? These stories that you like to tell and theater, did, did it start to make sense as one thing to you or not yet? Uh, there was a moment I feel it kind of came together. So I was a fanatic for movies. I loved movies. And they, I would have been 16, 17, 18 years old when in the late 70s. So, you know, I got to go see Altered States and Empire Strikes Back. And, you know, like it was a really rich uh, time for movies, obviously. Um, but there was a moment when I was a freshman in college. So I knew I wanted to act. I knew I enjoyed writing. But when I was a freshman in college, I had to do a thing in a media class where they made us write a uh, commercial and you had to write the what the narrator of the commercial said on the left side of the page and what the what 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 you saw in the commercial on the right side of the page and i really enjoyed it i was like oh this i get because it huh you know really yeah and i got i you know the instructor liked it and i was like that's cool how do i make how on earth would i make that into a living and then i started uh, i took a couple playwriting classes and I had a playwriting professor when I was probably 20 who said, your plays are pretty good, but, you know, there's about 35 scenes in them, uh, some of which take place huh. on mountaintops. I wonder if you're in the right medium. And uh, so I started applying to film schools. At what at what age were you applying to films? Like at what grade were you in when you started applying to film schools? It was the end of my junior year, or as it's more technically known the my second sophomore year because I was understood proceeding understood. at a leisurely pace at that well point. well I have some questions uh, about some of this stuff when you were 12 13 and doing that writing and enjoying sitting at the typewriter who were you as a kid then meaning were you popular did you have a crew of guys or women did you did you share the stories with them did did teachers single you out as a smart person um like sort of how did you feel like you fit in and I I, I'm interested in this for, about how people become artists, you know what I mean? And, and so many different paths happen. Like, did anyone tell you, hey, we think you're kind of special? Yeah, I mean, I, I was I, I was the, I was the smart kid with red hair. Um, <laughs> so I would not in any way describe myself as popular. Um, I was tall and skinny and I had red hair and I got good grades. And that. I didn't really feel a part of something. I had friends, but you know, they were as geeky as I was. Um, And they kept moving. I don't know if it was me or the families. I don't know why, but they kept (laughs) leaving the state. Um, It could have been the town. It could have been the town. It was maybe it was was tough, Um, but I didn't feel really a part of something until I was in plays in high school. And then, you know, that's when you're part of a cast and you're hanging out with seniors when you're a freshman and they actually kind of yes. give you the time of day because because it's different in theater, you know, than on the football team. No, of course. I mean, I, I did 
yeah, I, I, you know, I did both things. I was in theater and played sports and still had the same thing as you, where I felt at times completely on the outside and then other moments of being really inside of things. And, and, um, and so as people kept leaving, I guess the stories somehow kept you. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the way you tell it, it feels like maybe the stories kept you in some kind of company, the stories that you were able to tell yourself. I felt, and I haven't, I guess I haven't thought about it in a long time. I felt like the stories were where you could do whatever you want. Ah, uh, yes. Because you know, school's all assignments and, you know, it's all by rote. And if the rote stuff's coming fairly easily and you'd rather make stuff up, um, the stories where anything can happen and, you know, they find a mysterious box when they go in the woods and, you know, that, that, that's, that was, and I like to read a lot, um, because, you know, there, uh, I don't know if you've heard, but there was no internet, uh, back then. No, I mean, and, I was reading a lot too then. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, so I remember, you know, Alvin's secret code when I was like nine or 10 was one of my favorite books. So I wrote a story with a code in it. Um, and you know you're kind of you're kind you're 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 very derivative um, as a young writer and sometimes as an older one because you can't help but be influenced by all that's come before. Of course, but yes. um, but you're particularly derivative when you're a kid. Well, sure, you're you're. I have so many different thoughts. Uh, you know, I would read these books like The Great Brain, but I could ne and I loved them. I read all of them. But I always, I love the fact that you thought you could, like, I didn't think I could do it. I, I couldn't understand how somebody did it. I read, you know, I was reading five books a week sometimes, but I could, I never made the, the conscious thought, oh, I could do this. Did, did, I love that you did, you know, it, it speaks to that you were precocious. And I mean, that, that speaks to part of why you had so much professional success so young. Like, did, when I, when, you know, when one reads um, Stephen King's book on writing, he was yeah. writing stories yeah. like, I love that book. And he was writing stories at a young age too, but twinned with his desire to write them was his desire to have them read. He kept finding ways to try to get them published, sending them out, you know, starting zines that he would sell at his school for a buck. Did any of that happen for you? Or how, what did you do when you would finish a story? Who did you show it to? Or, or how, did it, how did it then matter? I'd show it to my parents and that was really about it. Um, the only... The, the more public thing in middle school, I started a, a, an underground paper, um, which with a couple of well, my that's friends. Similar. Yeah, which and the, and the point of that was uh, we just liked the idea that it was rebellious. Um, you know, so we uh, we probably did six issues of it in total, which was a lot of work. That was, you know, it really struck me how much <laughs> yeah, of course, much effort went into this thing. Um, but that was just because the you know the middle school paper was was silly and a joke and the headline was always you know if it was a story about sports the headline would be sports 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 and <laughs> you know yeah. if, if it was a, a a story about you know cl chlamydia it would be chlamydia 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 did um, the <laughs> other did the other kids take it as seriously as you took it do you think i think we took very seriously trying to be funny yeah, of course. And, yes. you know, there was one article, it was not mine, but it was a really brilliant satire about the middle school gym teacher, Don Hubka. And it <laughs> talked about, you know, like he would, because he was notorious at our, uh, at our school for taking a, a 50 minute gym period and spending the first 45 demonstrating. So the, my friend Paul Farley just sort of tried, imagined that that went, that happened to everything he did in life. 
And so he wrote a story about Don Hopkins going home. And, oh, that, you know, by the way, still hilarious. Yeah, That's still hilarious. Still a pretty good idea. Well, like, so in, in, did, but, but did he ever, did it ever get out? Did they ever see it? Did the kids at school see it? Oh, yeah. We would Xerox, my dad had a Xerox machine uh, at his office. So we would Xerox a bunch and leave them everywhere. You know, and we'd leave them like on Don Hubka's door, so that there was no and chance. Did you? That did you not? That's hilarious. Too. Did you not put your name in them, or did you put your name in them? We did not put our names in them, uh, but we wanted everybody to know it was us, of course. Of course. Did you get in Dutch for it, or was it okay? No, I think no. I never really got any blowback for it. No, because King gets in big trouble for it. I think it. I remember in on writing, he gets in big trouble. So you, you were able to get away with it. So that all makes sense to me that you were like uh, hard at this writing thing and knew you had some ability to like generate a reaction on the page, you know, generate a feeling in the, the person reading. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would say so. But mostly that it was just satisfying and it was something you didn't need, which writing still is. And whenever anybody, you know, asked for writing for screenwriters, I say, never forget that writing is the one pursuit we don't need anyone's permission for. Everybody else needs permission. They have to be given a script or millions of dollars or a role in a film or show. And we don't, we go home and open a new file. And yes, that, that was, um, which is, I think why they hate us. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I agree with that. I completely understand that. Yeah. Because, but for, they can't start until we start. Right. They can't start really until we finish, ideally, though I know you've been involved in many where they have started <laughs> and then you you had to keep starting. Yeah. I, I, I understand that. Um, and so you're a junior in college and you decide film school. And, and at that, what were you watching? What movies were you watching in college? Like what what like I remember I was a popular mu movie guy in high school, you know, Rambo, First Blood, the first Rambo and, and The Godfather and Westerns were my favorite movies. And then I got to college. And it was an amazing, right? Every day I got to see basically, or every other day, someone showed me some amazing old movie and it just changed me. Uh, by the time I left college, my, my, my taste in movies was entirely different. Uh, and then eventually I synthesized those things. What was your journey like in, in that regard? Well, there's, yeah, a similar to you, there's, there's the growing up period. And then there's what you started to see when you got to college. And, you know, through the high school period, I mean, I was coming of age, I was 13 when Jaws came out. So the next right. seven years of my life would have included Jaws, Close Encounters, Raid of the Lost Ark, E.T. Like, you can't not have those partially form you, you know, Yes. or I couldn't. Um, yes. And I also, anything that, that had smacked of, uh, you know, fantasy or, or, or mind bending at all, which is why I loved Altered States so much. Um, oh, that, yeah. that really struck me. Um, then the, the, uh, Ken Russell, I mean, altered states, right. you know, the, oh yeah. The, oh yeah. Yeah. So I was about to say that's not Cronenberg. Yes. Um, the, uh, uh, so that, but then I got to college and, you know, I started to, was exposed to more old stuff because both the university of Wisconsin and then UCLA where I transferred had great archives, film archives. And so I could see prints of you know, stuff that I hadn't been able to catch up with on television, like a lot of Polanski movies and um, Treasure of the Sierra Madre and Psycho. And, uh, you know, I, I, I came to meet a lot of great film directors and think of film as, you know, something that someone could really have a personal mark on. So I remember I had a film authors class, you know, when I was probably 21 that had that focused on Kubrick, Polanski uh, and Joseph Losey, 
and Max o- Max Ophels. Um, so that was uh, you know, oh that yeah, was really um, mind blowing. Well, and you can I can see it in in I mean you can see it in in your work the sort of popular you know those popular movies the way they got a hold of you but then these other deeper sort of themes i mean those popular movies were very deep also the ones that you're talking about i always as a kid confused altered states and scanners one came out in 80 the other in 81 and scanners is scanners is the cronenberg movie that i i literally my whole life have confused even though the movies are not similar i've confused them my entire literally since i was 14 years old you probably saw them the same weekend or something yeah i must have and then those commercials were both freaky and i just remember lumping them in i always have um and so when you were in film school was it directing then or or did you immediately start realizing because uh, it, you know, you started getting stuff made very early, right? You were like 23 or something when the first thing got made. Yeah. 24. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was an unseemly, uh, age I had, I, I started in film school. I was, um, I directed one or two shorts, but I really, I preferred the writing and I felt like that was enough to try to master. So at a time, so I wanted to, um, and I still, to this day, my favorite time is, you know, in a room alone typing. That's, what I like best. So um, I started out writing and I had some very good fortune. You know, you're a, a, a career that gets off to a good start or any kind of start ever um, is due to a couple things. Are you any good at it? Um, do you work hard at it? And do you have good luck? Yep. Um, and because without good luck, you're screwed. Um, but without any of those three things, you're screwed. So I met um, a guy named Martin Donovan, not the actor, but an Argentine uh, film director who'd done one independent movie. And I was doing, I was working at an internship for a, um, a, a guy who represented foreign films looking for U.S. distribution. So Martin and I met through that and he was looking for a young American writer and to work on something with because uh, he felt like he didn't have the vernacular and stuff. And um, we just really hit it off and he had a depth of film knowledge I hadn't really encountered in another human being uh up to that point and um so we wrote uh it was his idea but we wrote the script together for apartment zero and then because i was 24 and martin had you know balls the size of buenos aires um we just started running around telling people we had the money for it and (laughs) you know managed to get it made yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. When you started to do this stuff, uh, what was the reaction at home? Were they supportive of this idea of you going to film school and trying to make a go as an artist? Yeah, they were. I, I my my parents were, and are, well, my dad's passed away, but yes. my my parents were lovely about it, and um, they they really were, and they had no reason to be. I mean, I you know I went off to. I went off to become an actor and they're like, okay, figure, I'm sure figuring I'd get over it. (laughs) Uh, And, and then I, and then I said, no, 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 I'm going to move to Hollywood and seek my fortune as a, as a movie writer. Okay. (laughs) Um, And my dad had a small business that he, I think really wanted me to come and one day take over. And, um, but they were great about it and incredibly patient and financially supportive. So I, uh, always grateful for that. And was your ambition then to be working basically, um, you know, when you were, as you said, you loved the writing, was the ambition, hey, I'm going to be 
well, two questions. One, who were the people in your class at, at film school? Any, any, or were you the only one who, who made it out? Well, there were two. The way UCLA worked, I think still works, is um, there's an undergrad film degree, which is a two-year program you start when you're a junior. And that's what I was in. And then right. there's a graduate to, uh, a program. Um, but you all intermingle. You take some of the same classes. You work on each other's films. Um, you know, and you, you cross over. Probably my uh, closest friend uh, in film school was a guy named Don Payne, <clears throat> who has also now passed away, sadly. Uh, yep, he who, was a great guy. That was a great guy. Yep. Yeah, Don was a wonderful human being and worked on The Simpsons for years and wrote several movies as well. And um, uh, so Don was in my class. Uh, in the, the master's class, probably the most notable is uh, Alexander Payne. Um, right who obviously has turned out to be a brilliant filmmaker over the course of the time I was at UCLA, Alexander was always working on this one film. And so, you know, we would make fun of him for it, you know, like, Hey, Alexander, you, you know, quarter of the way through prep yet. It was, that's funny. <laughs> and uh joke was on us. He's the best of all of us. <laughs> you know? That's right. Yeah. It turned out he knew what he was doing, but, Absolutely. uh, but so was your ambition then, Hey, I'm going to be a Hollywood screenwriter. Like I'm going to, I'm going to stay out here and, and I'm going to, I'm going to write movies. I, I would have, I told myself <clears throat> and my, my dad that I would have settled for, I would settle for any paying job in the movies. Um, but I really, but I, of course I wanted to be a writer. Um, and, that was probably a lie. I would have been disappointed if I didn't get to write, but you know, of course. You, when you don't, you don't think you necessarily can like, and if you, were you certain that you could, that you could do this and get paid for it? No, I mean, I just knew, you know, I was older than, like when I started, I was 30. I mean, that's why the- Right, you the, started- Like you're three years, you're three years, yeah, you're three years older than I am, but you got, you know, you started 13 years before I did. That's why you were, it always seemed to me like you were much older than I was because you'd got this huge head start. Um, so I was 30, you know, and I, I, I hoped so. I knew that I had to write, Dave, is the only, like I just knew- you know, Levine and I were like, had this idea and knew, knew we loved, this is what we knew. We loved words. We loved movies. You know, we were really like word free, you know, I mean, you know, the way that we write like these big, like, you know, what uh, you're able to do all of it. Like we write great dialogue and action and you're, but you know, for us, it always came from like this place of these bursts of dialogue. We loved David Mamet and the Barry Levinson. The, so we'd hoped like we had it in us, but but all we knew was we were going to show up every day and write. And we had no idea that it would turn out. I guess when we finished the script, I thought, oh, this feels, you know, like it could work. And, and David read a million scripts and he said, no, Brian, we, we wrote something that should get made. Hmm. But, but it, until you get the second, I, I, I want, for, for us, so I want to ask you, and for us, um, I always felt one script was like, if you looked at a graph, one script was just a dot. But the second you had a second one made, now there was like a line, like you were in a direction, like something was right. happening. It was crucial to me to get the second movie made. I felt that's when I felt like, okay, maybe there's a career that's possible because you know what I mean? Once yeah. can be a total fluke. Did, did, did you have any sense of that or, or were I, you confident the whole time? No, I was, well, I was too young to not be confident. Uh -huh. You know, I, uh -huh. I mean, my twenties were weird because Again, I think I was, I think I had some talent and I worked hard, <clears throat> but I think I also got really lucky, you know, um, 
I mean, Jurassic Park happened when I was 29, which is right. It's crazy. Um, and, and it's taken me, I'd say I probably spent 15 or 20 years after that thinking, Oh man, I can't believe that I was 29. And that's going to be the biggest, biggest thing <laughs> I ever have. That's going to be the most beloved movie I ever work on. It's never going to be as good as that again. I can't believe uh, I probably for you know like 15 or 20 years. I don't know how many psychiatrists I wore out with that narrative actually feeling bad about that's fascinating to me you mean actually feeling like instead of going hey i was part of this incredible thing i wrote this movie that's so beloved and so important i mean still relevant today people talk about it all the time but that's... instead of just loving that it haunted you that the question of whether you could ever um outstrip it haunted yeah. you yeah but see what you just said is you know with the wisdom of somebody who's 50 something Um, what I was feeling was with the lack of insight of somebody who's turned, maybe turning 40 and thinking, I gotta, I gotta do it. I gotta be in a constant upward trajectory. And how do I do that now? Um, So ambition was hard. So this, was that ambition, do you think? Or like, yeah, but also just like, you know, greed and desperate need for praise (laughs) and, you know, all all those (laughs) less, uh, less admirable qualities. So like, it's only been in the last, I'd say five to 10 years where I've felt, boy, I'm, grateful for what I've had and it's okay if I don't get any more because that was more than anyone's share. Um, and, and then I think from that place, you can maybe do good work again. That's amazing to me because I totally understand how you could be that, uh, have that kind of self-talk, but you know, David, you're always such a great counselor. Like anytime I've ever had a question about stuff and the, like you do always have, uh, I guess it's easy, easier to do when it's not about you, but you've always, I think, had this wisdom about how the business works and what stuff means. And you're very generous with it, with people who are in your sphere. Um, so it's funny to me that you couldn't quite give that talk to yourself. I guess um, it's always hard. I could give it, but not entirely believe it or not be satisfied, you know, like whatever. But it obviously, yes. that was uh, that that was a, a, a great gift and a, a really weird period where, you know, some really terrific stuff happened. And I think I still got I still managed to do some good work through it. So that was good. Moving well, of away course. from and that, then, was helpful. And then and then. Oh, that's interesting. Getting out of the town where where the the sort of need to compete can overtake you. Yeah, and it seems strange to say you know moving to New York because it was less competitive. <laughs> but, I understand that completely, though. But man. it's less that competitive in our field, you know, and there are fewer of us. And also, there's a thing in New York. Do you wear your failure a little more as a as a a badge of honor in New York? You know, people. Yes. People yes. tell stories about the dreadful thing that happened to them. Can you imagine being in LA and boasting about a horrible flop you had? Like you'd never do it because everyone right. would That's stay so the funny. hell away from you in case it was contagious. Yeah, they don't want to catch it. Yes. No, of course. No, of course. That's such a perfect. And yet I have to say you, you well, a few things. One, in case people don't know, like you did have successes as big as Jurassic Park afterwards. I mean, you did write Spider-Man and you wrote Mission Impossible. So you you did later write movies that were every bit as as important um, as, you know, the as as Jurassic Park uh, eventually. Uh, but but to me, Bad Influence is is a really crucial movie. I remember seeing it in the movie theater when it came out and it was one of those movies that um, unsettled me as an artist, even though it was years before. It was one of those movies that made me go like, wait, this guy's writing about stuff that I've kind of like, the type of guys I've noticed too, and I've always had a big problem with. And 
the dynamic you picked up on. And I thought you'd, you'd rendered it so well and captured a certain mood that was about in LA and in New York and in Chicago at that time, a certain way that, um, young men were carrying themselves and, Mm. Uh, you know, you use the psychopath um, as metaphor, as real thing, but as metaphor also, in a way that I don't know whether Brett Eaton Ellis's book, your book was before Americans, your movies before American Psycho, right? Yeah, right. And you know, I I think it anticipates um, American American Psycho. And can you talk a little bit about that, how that came to be? And and even though that movie wasn't a huge hit, I have to assume your life changed in some way from that movie. Can you talk about that time where you were, what you noticed that made you want to do that and how that got made? Yeah, it was a lot of, I mean, it's similar to apartment zero in many ways. There are a lot of common themes, you know, someone who's swept a a law, you know, a tight male relationship maybe has homoerotic undercurrents. um, And, someone is swept along by someone else's, you know, beauty and apparent ease in the world. Unfortunately, that person's, uh, you know, a sociopath. Um, And so I wanted to write about that. And I was also writing about someone I noticed specifically uh, in life. Um, And then you extrapolate, you know, you get an idea about, you see how someone or how they behave. And then you sort of extrapolate it into a, into a story. and did uh, you write that? Did you write that on spec or did you? I did. It? I wrote that on spec and that, that it opened a lot of doors for me And the biggest door it opened probably was, um, that I, uh, I, universal Casey silver, who was the head of universal at the time wanted to yeah. buy it. And he said, I like it, but I don't like it as a thriller. I'd le- I, I think it would make a great comedy. Why don't you rewrite it? Um, for Matthew Broderick, who, oh, no. who was a big deal <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Um, not that he's Who's not, great. Not Matthew now, Broderick but, is He's great, but he's that's not what that movie is. He would have been great in the thriller version. I did actually meet him for it. And um, but he was known for comedy at the time, so they wanted him to to do it as a comedy. And I thought about it a lot and they offered me money and I didn't have any money. And I um I but I went in and said, I really appreciate your offer. I'm not gonna do it because I think it'll make a really good thriller. But if you want a comedy, I'd be happy to write you a comedy. <laughs> you know, let's think of another idea. And awesome. And Casey liked that I didn't, that I said no. So he said, this kid's got moxie, you know? And uh, (laughs) he, uh, so he, he signed me up to an overall deal, which studios were still doing at the time for two years where I would pitch them ideas. They'd tell me when they like one and then I do it. And then occasionally they'd pitch me an idea. And if I responded, I'd do it. And it was great. I got a little, you know, broom closet to write in and I got to just go and work on my own ideas for a couple of years. Well, that's fascinating. That's what, that was the said, big change for me. Say, yeah, that makes total sense. Saying no is um, very powerful in Hollywood. I've always found that, that a legit no, no when you mean it, um, especially when you say no to, to a, a genuine opportunity uh, does give you a kind of, there's a kind of status that attaches to that, especially when you have a lot to lose and, and you say no. But the way in which you say no is really important too. Yeah, you so, can't just be a dick. You, you, right, th- right. If it's a considered, you know, I really thought about this and I appreciate it, here's why, um, then people don't feel rejected. They feel like you have some integrity. How did Bad Influence come together? Um, the producers were... One of the producers was this guy that I'd had the internship with, who uh, Maury Eisenman, 
uh, who, and the other, he brought in Steve Tisch to produce it with him. And Steve right. really pulled it together nicely because uh, he obviously had more mainstream Hollywood connections than, than any of us did. And um, Steve found a recommended uh, Curtis Hansen and uh, to direct it. And uh, Curtis was just a, just a delight. Boy, did I learn a lot from him and he was really cool. And, um, we went yeah, to the late, re- the late Curtis Hansen, who yeah. I think most, most famously directed, uh, LA confidential and eight mile. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was just, right after ours. He did, um, hand that rocks the cradle. And after right. hand that rocks the cradle, he did LA confidential. So he was really entering uh, this, uh, you know, incredibly, uh, creatively fertile and, time. And, and talk about what happened when you meet a direct. So this one, unlike on the first one where you kind of created it with a director on this one, you wrote it yourself. You had the idea yourself. So when a director comes into it, are you now going back and forth with the director? Or are you handing it over to him? Do you show up on set? What's that dynamic? No, like? he was very uh, cool. He was, I think, you know, I was still quite young. I was probably 26. And he, um, he, wanted to teach, you know, he wanted me to do the rewrites. He was, would have been quite capable of doing them himself, but you know, he'd been a writer long enough to know that that, right. that hurts when it's an original, don't take somebody's original and rewrite it. Um, so he said, let's, uh, let's work on that. So I would go to his house in Venice every day and sit out in his little garage that he'd redone with, you know, old typewriters and cool movie memorabilia. Cause he was an incredible film historian. Um, and, uh, you know, and we'd, uh, we'd rewrite it. And one day, um, this guy came in to say hi, cause he was walking past and are we going to meet later for coffee? And he left and I said, that's Robert town. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was Robert town. He said, yeah, I know. <laughs> Robert town for people yeah. listening famously wrote Chinatown and also, um, wrote the great, um, maybe Senator Corleone, president Corleone speech in the Godfather. No, I did not know that. Yeah, the one, the one, that one scene with Michael and uh, the Don outside, yeah, uh, is was that that one scene was not written by Francis or Puzo. It was written by Town. Huh. I'm sure at their direction, but somehow they wanted a specific thing, and he delivered that that run. Yeah, awesome. You know, the the it's too late, Pop. Too yeah. late, Pop. That, yeah, yeah. that 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 whole thing. Um, so that's cool that you you saw Town, and then were you on set once you guys got the script where you wanted it? Did did he include you in? Did they say, hey, we're thinking about Rob Lowe for that? Like, how did. Well, Rob Lowe was you... in first. Rob Lowe was in before uh, Curtis. Rob Lowe was going to play the 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 um, James Spader part. And oh, wow. I didn't, I, I never thought that was right. And um, I sneakily asked him if he'd go have lunch with me someday. And so he said, sure. And we went and had lunch. And I said, you know, you want to play the bad guy. You never get to play the bad guy. Why are you not playing the other guy? Um, and he said, well, I, I don't know. I just assumed they never, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but. Donna Reed and from here to eternity, man. That was your idea? That was my idea. And so I, you know, I, I have a foundational story like this too, where they were going to have wait someone else. Wait a minute. To be fair, I think it was Martin Donovan's idea. And I, I said, you're right. And then I went and had. Uh, but you did it. I'm saying you're the one who yeah. put that into effect. Yeah. Uh, on that movie. And uh, so then Rob was in. Yeah. And then, and, he then was in, and then, and then Curtis amazing and did you go to set on the first day you've told me in the past you don't like being on set if you're not directing but i'm just wondering on that one well i don't now but back then the first 10 years or so i love to go to the set because it's you know it's really exciting um and 
it's, you know, your stuff's coming to life. And then after about 10 years of it, you start to realize, well, my stuff's coming to life, but half the time I think it's coming to life wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not allowed to say anything uh, or it would be terribly bad form or I'll never be asked back to the set. So, you know, then it just gets frustrating and you think, and also in fairness to the director and actors, they need to be allowed to do their thing and they got to be able to interpret Yes. And they can't just record what you wrote exactly the way you want it to be, because then they're not doing their thing. And they and sure. it, sometimes that creative process is better to just not be present for. Yeah, there are some movies I've loved that, I, you know, ones where Dave and I aren't producing or directing. There are some that I've loved being on the set of and some that it's been absolute torture to be on the set of for those reasons. And yeah, um, I'm always excited the first week just to show up because it's like uh, still amazing to me that. Yeah, to do this. And hey, we made it and nobody shut it down. (laughs) Yeah, to me, that thing of seeing trucks will never, for me anyway, that trailers and trucks, that will never get tired. That's always incredible to me. Literally every single episode I show up on Billions, I take a second and go like, well, don't ever take this for granted. So I understand both um, uh, emotions that you have. We're going to get to you directing because obviously the seeds of that are in you saying, uh, I don't think they're bringing them to life correctly, but we have to talk about the moment you met Spielberg because, and when you started to tell your origin story with movies, those are all Spielberg movies. And so uh, with George Lucas thrown in. So w- what happened? How did you and Spielberg come together? And obviously that was a long, I probably still is a long relationship the two of you have, and you've done a lot of great work together. Um, he was the biggest name in the business then as he is now in many ways. So, so talk a little bit about how, how you guys found one another um, well, and how nervous you were for the first meeting. Yeah, it was very nerve wracking as hell. Um, he, I think read our script. So Martin and I had then written a second script uh, called death becomes her, which during my term at universal, they bought uh, from us and it became this Bob's Mechas movie. And um, so Steven read it because um he was reading you know bob's making a movie he wants to see what right. he's doing um so martin and i met him just as a general sort of uh you know nice to meet wow. you which was you know which was really um mind-blowing i mean it's first of all the weird thing is that you know you go to amblin which this was probably 92 um and and you go to amblin and it's this you know it's this like it looks like it's like this Adobe place where, you know, like animated bluebirds salt the food and stuff. It's, it's like this magical, <laughs> you know, <laughs> other land. And it's, yeah. it's, it was, it was pretty weird. Um, so that was great, but it was just a, hello, how are you? Nice to meet you. If you ever have anything great, call us um, type meeting. The, the time that was more than about, you know, a while later um, he was working on uh, Jurassic park and it wasn't going the way, they wanted it to, and they tried a couple different versions. And Casey uh, Silver again said to Stephen, "Why don't you try this young guy? We have him on staff. If it doesn't work out, you know, it doesn't cost anything. So you see what you think." So I read the book and I went and told him how I would do it, like what I thought, how I thought it should be structured. That was pretty nerve wracking because at that point, so that was just you and Stephen in a room. Yeah. At that point, Martin and I weren't really weren't working together right. a- anymore. And he also I'd gone to see him and said, you know, 
they have this thing that I, I'm going to go talk about, but it's more like it was fine. Um, so, right. But it was like your thing. You were like, I get this. I don't. The other thing was the first one was Martin had an idea. Then you worked together. Now it was like, I'm ready to do this. Yeah. And so and I'd done bad influence in the meantime. And I'd right. written several scripts for Universal at that point. So um, so I went and told him how I would structure a movie version of the book. And he liked it. And we started we started work. But what was different about working with him than than other I mean, Curtis, obviously, legendary, very important director. Steven changed the entire film business. So, and the way we tell stories is film people. So what did you get? I imagine that first six months of working with him must have sort of must have been a big ramp up in terms of like learning new shit about how to do this. Or maybe not. I mean, tell me. Um, it felt, well, there's a couple things. The first thing was... It takes a while to get over. I can't believe I'm in the room. <laughs> and then, right. I, you know, I, yeah. I, I work with him to this day and I still have it occasionally. But back then I had right. it all the time. And you cannot do good work that way. And right. he act, he knows enough to know about, about the week that he leaves. He knows enough to know that. And he, he would say at various times, he would go out of his way to say, well, it's you know, I'm really enjoying you as a collaborator and, uh, or I, you know, he had some, he'd have some thing. I'd compliment him on an old movie and he'd say, that means so much coming from a colleague. And I know he was doing Aha. that on ah, purpose that's so funny. to get that's me so to funny. mellow out <laughs> and, you know, and you can't, yes. and not just be someone who would applaud all the boss's ideas. Cause he does, you know, that's, not, well, that's not useful. That's not no. useful. It's not why he hires you. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and he would sometimes refrain from comment. I'd say, what do you think if? And he'd say, well, he'd answer in about 30 seconds and say, but I don't want to say anymore because I want to see what you would do. Um, and so awesome. that awesome. helped and put me at ease a lot. Um, and then there's a, I guess there's, um, the biggest difference is that it's just you and him. And in any other movie I'd done, there was, there was just a lot of other people to listen to. Uh, you know, and you, sure. you're constantly, I don't know if you've ever encountered this, you're constantly balancing the needs of a whole bunch of people and they are contrary needs. There are the people who are giving the money and the actors and the producers and the, you know, there's just a lot um, to synthesize. And with yes. Steven, it really was just you and him. And on the rare occasion, he'd ask someone for their opinion under no circumstances did you hear it directly from them in written or verbal form. He would say what he'd take a value, what he thought that person said and say it to you. And I still, it's, you know, it's still the best way to work because the fewer of us there are, the better. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, and then when he would come up with ideas, uh, I, I imagine that must've been fun when he would come up with one of those real Spielbergy notions and you would then have to find a way to incorporate that into the script. Yeah. It, on that movie in particular, I came in, he had clear ideas for several set pieces, um, like the T-Rex attack on the road in the middle of the movie, which is yes, of course. Know, a masterpiece of action filmmaking. That, that I wish I could say I was hugely, I contributed an enormous amount to that. I did not. Uh, I would say I filled in the word bubbles over the characters' heads <laughs> is probably <laughs> the extent. No, but that's super. That must have just uh, been amazing to get a download like that from him. Must have been incredible. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, 
Um, I've had that experience once or twice with someone like Spielberg. I mean, um, Soderbergh sometimes will have a very specific visual idea. And, you know, you're, and he'll say, like, I have this notion of this visual thing. And then you go and run with that. That's great. I mean, that's yeah. great for me anyway. That's great fun. You know, great yeah, fun. That, that was the, the most fun part and still is with Steven or with anyone is the making up something cool part, you know, um, like and how it how offhandedly it can sometimes happen. Um, I think I was leaving a meeting once and, and it was, we were talking about the part of the movie after the T-Rex attack when Malcolm's in the back of the Jeep and they go get him and there's this thundering of footsteps and he says, Oh, I'm really worried. We should go. We got to get out of here. And, and then they drive away. And as I was leaving the meeting, Stephen yelled down the hall, have the T-Rex chase him for a while. <laughs> and I, I oh, like, that's that was, just great that was the total genesis and i le- i turned back and said oh like how long and he said i don't know just a while and so i said okay so oh that's which is now you know led, then led to the great mirror shot and the you know must go faster and it turns into well, really right but then getting thing. to take i mean getting to take that and run with it's just um uh in- incredible what a cool ass what a cool ass thing to do and um all right, I want to uh, turn to, and, and was it after that that you decided, okay, I've now worked with kind of the best, I'm ready to go direct? Like, what made you finally go, I'm directing? Um, the tone of the material, I'd say having a child uh, made me want to direct. The tone of the material was really it. Right. Because with any of this other stuff, I knew uh, that's not my thing, and it's not what I, I don't know. You know, like, there's things that you just know, well, this is mine. This is more of me, yes. you know, um, which I would imagine is why, you know, when you guys created your show and if I'm going to go, if something's going to hopefully work out for a few years and consume all this yes. time, it better really feel like it's me and not well, an assignment. Yes. And as, you know? Well, no, it's true. And any, I mean, anybody who knows Dave and me even a little bit knows that when they watch the show, they see you're exactly right. It's obviously something that really yeah. comes from. It's not a massive know. leap in tone or concerns from right. rounders to, to this. Yeah. Like they're they're yeah, from, they're fruit of the same tree. So yes, from what we are. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. And and so, and so you started yeah, go ahead. Well, so I had a kid and then I started I wrote a, a script about uh, you know, a blackout in Los Angeles and these people with a new baby and they're very concerned and he feels like he's less than a man and you know, all the that stuff, which yes. seemed very personal. And, it, you know, I wrote it very quickly and I thought, okay, that, that one, I think I might want to talk to the actors. Fascinating. So, yeah. Right. Yet, yet you still wrote Panic Room a few years later and, 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 and born of a lot of the same issues in a way yeah. uh, and decided you didn't want to direct it. That was more, I, I flirted with wanting to direct it very briefly, but um, we had just moved you know, and it was, I didn't want that tumult. At that point I had directed uh, twice. Yeah. And so I knew well what kind of tumult that brings to your life and, you know, how hard it is on you and your family. And so I, yes. I, I, I didn't want to do that one. No, I, 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 I understand that. So in, in watching this movie, the new movie, you should have left, which people can, where can they see the movie if they, they want to watch uh, it? You know, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, they can see it on pretty much anywhere you stream movies. You can, uh, uh, iTunes, um, Amazon Prime, Google Play, Vudu. Uh, I believe on demand on your television as that well. That is it, on demand on your television, yeah. And um, what I was struck by was how, well, I was struck by the resonances to a lot of your work in the, 
the themes, but also I was struck by the the heaviness of the consideration in almost a Russian way of guilt and consequences and the ways in which one wrestles with those things. And I think in the past, what's funny, I could draw a line from Bad Influence to this movie, as you said, drawing a line from Rounders to Billion. I can really draw a line from Bad Influence to this movie, even though this was, I guess, based loosely based on 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 a book. But it's an even, if possible, an even darker worldview. And, and I, uh, uh, in terms of, I mean, I guess there's like, I, don't, I won't spoil the movie, but I would suggest uh, there is still the notion in this movie of a sacrifice for love that is possible. Um, but uh, uh, it is, uh, to me anyway, almost Russian in the way it's talking about this sort of inescapable... Uh, uh, results of past actions. And is that part of what drew you to this? Did you know that's what you were going to be writing about? Am I wrong? Is that not what you wrote about? Oh, no, that's in there. Uh, I, you know, stuff evolves as you're writing it. And um, I guess that evolved pretty quickly. I, you know, it's, I, I grew up, I went to Catholic school. Uh, and, you know, small town, Wisconsin in the 70s in a small Catholic elementary school. And I, I had to go to confession from the time I was seven. And the notion of some kind of original sin or culpability is really strong in Catholics. And, you know, I, I parted from the church when I was 15, but um, as Bruce Springsteen said in his, uh, in in his great book about, you know, his life and career, he he went back home and he, he, he grew up next to the, to the Catholic church and school. And he went over and he looked at it and he felt compelled to go inside and actually sit down in the church for a little while and think about things. And he said, man, Catholics, once you're on the team, you're on the team for good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so anyway, I, I, I wanted to explore those notions and I've been exploring them for some time. I think I might be done exploring them. Uh, but the notion that there's, you know, I've been writing creepy things happen in your house and that there are levels to your house and to yourself that you don't know yes. about or that you're not willing to admit. I've been writing about that for a while. And um, I think I'm, I, I might've worked it out for good this time. I don't know. We'll good. Start. You got, well, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I really did love the ending and I, I don't, I won't give up the ending, but I really did love the ending and, and this sort of, uh, those different strands and the way that they, the emotion, I'm not, the plot strands all come together, of course. Uh, that's, uh, you would never make a movie where the plot stra- strands didn't come together. But, you know, I thought it was a, a difficult uh, trick to get all the thematic strands to uh, tie up in the way that you did. And I really was very pleased and kind of proud that, that you were able to. And what a performance, uh, you know, I know you and, you and, and Kevin are old pals, uh, but, uh, I love Amanda Seyfried and I thought she just killed it in the movie. The three of them are great. Um, Kevin and Amanda and Avery Essex, the the seven year old girl who, who plays that part. All I I had really terrific actors and that was, you know, the, the Blumhouse movies are famously made on a a tight budget. And I wanted that. Um, Me and my family were living in London at the time and I wanted to work there and I wanted to work in Wales, which I thought was just a beautiful landscape. And, um, and so, you know, I had I had three great actors at this remote house in Wales, and I got to kind of just uh, put them all through their paces. 
Amanda is such a gamer. I don't know if you know that Amy just directed. I Amanda. do. I know in in uh, a mouthful of air. In, in a mouthful of air, and it's just uh, Amanda's work is just incredible. And I really saw just how deep she's prepared to go, and was really inspired by. Her. Yeah, what's and it, I love. And what's fun about in this movie, and I assume in a mouthful of air, though I didn't read it, but you know, I know the subject matter is yes. is, is a tad dark. Um, it's heavy. Yeah, it's heavy. I, she doesn't. Amanda hasn't gotten to do a lot of that. You know, because when you're her age in Hollywood and you look like she looks, they want you to play the ingenue. And so yes. she hasn't had a lot of opportunities for that. And uh, I think she really enjoys it. And she's really good at it. Uh, I, I agree. So at, with our last few minutes here, I, there are a couple of things. One, I, I, I've asked you this over lunch, but I just think people will be fascinated by this, which is um, unless you if you talked about this on Craig and John's podcast, I won't because I didn't go back and re-listen to it. But do, have you talked about how you wrote the Mission Impossible ac- action sequence uh, anywhere where people can get it? Because to me, you know, I've called. I actually had a lunch with you once just to ask you, like, about what you were thinking as you wrote that action sequence. The one in the middle where they go into the CIA. Yeah. Have you like? Because, I don't think uh, I've to, talked about it. So just talk about it for a second, would you? About because to me, it's one of the great modern action sequences and. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about what you were trying to accomplish story-wise, what you were trying to do in that sequence? Yeah. And how that led to the choices that you made? Um, well, it's, I'm not the, you know, first of all, I gave De Palma all his visual ideas, as I always do. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, no, that that was a really effective collaboration of a director and screenwriter. You know, that's how it's supposed to work. Um, that movie had went through a number of phases. Brian and Steve Zalian had written a, a very good treatment together. Um, Zalian had to go uh, do other stuff. I came in and, and, you know, we reworked it some, and, and then I wrote the script. And in that sequence, we would, we got together, you know, every day at his, this house he'd rented in LA and we ate Snyder's of Hanover sourdough pretzels. And huh. we talked about what was going to happen in that sequence. And we had first uh, researched it what the CIA, we had a lot of advisors on that movie, um, as you can imagine. And we'd researched carefully what the CIA's actual, um, you know, like security systems were like, and they were so boring um, that we could, (laughs) (laughs) they were, they were like, well, there's a room, you know, there's cameras all over and there's a room full of monitors and we sit and look at the monitors and watch what happens. And, you know, and we thought, okay, well, somebody, maybe we shoot empty video of a hallway and splice it in. And it was just so familiar and dull that we said, we got to, we got to make shit up. We got to throw out all this research and just, right. so Brian had seen that there was a fire, some, I can't remember where. And he said, what if there's, what if they, they show up as firemen, right? So there's a fire at the CIA. They got to have fire, you know, come in. And, and so that's how they're going to get in. And then we just started throwing ideas at each other. I said, you know, he wanted this room and he said, I'm tired of all these noisy action scenes. Why don't we have a sound monitor? And if it gets over a certain sound level, the alarm. Uh, Great. And I said, yeah. And what if the floor lights up like in that Michael Jackson video? So you can't touch the floor. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And then that leads uh, to the beat of sweat, I guess. Right? Yeah. And then naturally you think, what are the now? How do we, as Brian once told me, and I always remembered it. You set the suspense hook and then you stretch it out as long as humanly possible. Um, so it was and just you have fun. You have fun writing those sequences, right? Oh, they're great fun. Yeah, especially if you get your playlist right and you got headphones on, and you know you're 
I mean, it can't be anything with lyrics, but you know, the appropriate kind of movie scores. And you, you come up with as many kinds of ideas like that, like, and there's a rat and he drops the knife. And like, you, if you watch that scene, it's, it's idea piled on idea to try to, you know, just milk the hell out of it. Um, but then how do you also, one thing that I find amazing about that sequence, because those are the heart for, for, and I remember asking you about this once and you were, you were like, I love writing these. That's the thing I like writing the least. You know, I'm, I'm just, my imagination doesn't naturally go there. It's not my thing. But what I think is amazing about that sequence is it's as, when I watch it, it's as much about the friendship between those two guys as yeah. it is about their, as it is about the, um, the task at hand. You come out of that and those guys are cemented for the next six movies because of that sequence, I would say. And yeah. was that important? Was that important to you in the writing of it? Yes. Yeah. You, uh, you need your allies and you need, you know, you need to know who to root for and that they've discovered that, that Bing Rames's character has discovered something dark about what we're actually stealing during the sequence is a major story, story point that yes. affects the rest of the movie. Um, so a funny sidebar, Ving Rhames' character used to die at the end of the movie. and Oh no, that would have been a big mistake. Yeah, uh, that's what Ving thought. And uh, at, in, in rehearsal, like a week before shooting, we read we were reading through all the script and, oh good, okay, everything's good. Any, any questions? Ving said, I got a question. I said, yes. How come the black guy got to die? We said, uh... Well, it's not that it's the black guy. He said, no, the black guy always dies. And he rattles off like 10 movies where the black guy always dies. And so Brian and I said, all right, fair enough. And so he lives. And I liked that, um, you know, as you said, seven movies later, Bing's still alive. Me and Brian are long gone. <laughs> all right. No, those. Well, he was right he's, about, he's first of all, he was. He was right about the fact that movies often do that, even if that wasn't your intention. And um, he was right that his character should stick around. We had this once, yeah. and, uh, and I'll let you go. Uh, in a movie we wrote, Vin Diesel and directed, Vin Diesel's character was supposed to die. And in fact, we're standing on set and he goes, I just think you should shoot one where I live. And we go, but you die. And then he goes, I think you're going to test the movie and find that people don't want me to die. And we're like, listen, man, you know, you signed up for the movie. We're not going to test the movie. And it's the thing we shoot it. He's dead, of course. We test the movie. The crowd is outraged that he died. We have to go yeah. reshoot the movie so he lives. Uh, and that's true. We did. And he was right. So he and Ving were both right uh, that they should live. Um, David Kapp, thank you for doing this. I, I, I know I had to. I kept it to a tight hour. That's great. It was, a, it was a delight, Brian. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I mean, uh, people should go see your movie. They should go see all your movies. If you haven't seen Bad Influence, even though I know that's not what you're on about today, they should go back and see it because it's an amazing, I know it's not the, the strictly the beginning of your career, but it does mark something in the beginning of your career. It's like a very complete work. Um, and uh, and I think it, 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 it sort of sets the stage for a lot of what you did going forward and you wrote it yourself. And um, and the new movie you should have left is really worth your time too. Uh, it it's not exactly what it seems to be on the surface, and and I love movies that 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 do that. Uh, David's not active on social media, really, right? People can't really find you on social media. I am on I? Instagram. Uh, right. DG Cap. Um, All right, look so. look for DG Cap on Instagram. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on, on Twitter or, or Instagram. And uh, thanks a lot for listening, folks. Uh, David Kep, you're a legend for a reason. Thanks for talking. Thanks, man. Great to talk to you. 